0: So, if you haven't been here, we have been uh, working our way through the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in John's Gospel. Uh, Things like, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life, trying to think of another one, I am the gate. And this morning we find ourselves at the end of this series, so this is the final I am statement that Jesus makes. And from next week and over the summer, we're going to be in a series in the Psalms, just so you know. It's going to be great. Um, so in the first 12 chapters of John's gospel, Jesus has unequivocally defined who he is. He is the beginningless, transcendent God, infinitely exalted above the world and the universe, upon which everything that has being depends. And he has made clear that he and the Father are one and the same sins have been forgiven in his name, the multitudes have been fed at his hands, death flees and Lazarus has been raised from the dead. So crowds are now searching him out. Droves of people have begun to follow him and they're becoming more and more excited, more and more compelled and convinced of who he is. But as the Messiah's fame uh, develops, as it surges, so too does the threat on his life. The religious authorities are out to kill who they perceive as a scandalous blasphemer, and Jesus' disciples are, understandably, terrified. They're deeply troubled because they can feel it. They have begin to realize that the opposition towards Jesus is growing. This might not end how they expected. The triumph of Jesus might not look how they hoped that it would. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in the middle of Jesus' long farewell to his disciples. And so very famously, Mary has uh, just anointed Jesus with oil, So, effect, and that's effectively for his burial. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet and shared supper with them for the last time. And he has shockingly just proclaimed that he will be betrayed and denied. So, Unlike the previous I am statements that we've heard, Jesus is no longer proclaiming who he is to the world. His very public ministry have sh- has shifted. And these final two statements are to privately comfort and to assure his closest friends before his death. The first of these statements Ed focused on last week, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is reassuring them, I'm not gonna leave you. I'm on your side. And then directly after this, I am the true vine. Not only am I never going to leave you, but I'm going to be in you. I'm going to be living inside of you, and you will be in me. Remain in me. Remain in me. The Spirit's coming. Don't fear. Remain in me, and I'll remain in you. Do you feel that this morning? I'm not, I'm not sure I do. But do you feel that... Um, that connected to Jesus? This is John 15, one to 16. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. So we, you and I, we don't quite get the weight of the imagery here. Vines, wine, if you're anything like me, you think Napa, Lodi, Sonoma. Um, we understand what a vine looks like, what it's supposed to do, what it grows. We even understand what its wine tastes like. And that's kind of somewhat helpful. But when Jesus says, I am the true vine, his Jewish listeners would have immediately understood the weight of this statement because, in the Old Testament, uh, writers frequently described Israel as the vine. And this imagery was so significant to the Jewish community that at the entrance of the holy place in the temple steps led to the curtain which was covered in uh, purple scarlet and blue flowers and above the curtain grew this gigantic grapevine of pure gold representing Israel and wealthy citizens could bring gifts to add to the vine so grapes or Ten, like tendrils or leaves, and these would be added by metal workers to the ever growing vine. Can you imagine the grandeur of that? Pure gold hung above the holy place, reminding Israel that you're the chosen people, God's chosen instrument to grow the kingdom, and that his promise was to use them to bear holy fruit. The psalmist says that the vine was brought out of Egypt by God and planted by him in a good land. But then in, then in Psalm 130, that the vine regularly failed to yield the fruit that God expected that it would yield. And the prophet Isaiah agrees. He says that God looked for a crop of good grapes, but it only yielded bad grapes. So for Jesus to describe himself as the true or, or the genuine vine in verse 1, it can only mean that Israel's vine status has been fulfilled in Jesus. He is what they've been waiting for. It's in and through him that the good crop will now come. He is the new Israel, where everyone who turns to him is included, Jew or Gentile. Verse six. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So, verses like this one have often been used (laughs) to scare and condemn. And for that reason, I think it's really important that I actually explain what it means before I very quickly move on. Um, This is not Jesus talking to Christians, people that believe and follow him. This is Jesus talking to people who have consciously rejected him, specifically the Pharisees. So rest assured that you are not in view when Jesus talks about those who do not remain in him, even at times when my behavior, your behavior is not that Jesus-like, even at those times when you doubt what you believe, even in those times when you feel spiritually or emotionally far away from God, you're still not who Jesus is talking about. He is talking about a portion of people to whom he has primarily come, God's people, Israel, who have heard him say what he has to say, seen him do the things that he's done, and yet still rejected him as the Messiah for whom they've been waiting. The Pharisees have failed to see that because Jesus has fulfilled all that was promised to Israel. He is now the true vine, and as a result, Inclusion in the one true vine is now and forever and entirely dependent on acceptance as Jesus, of Jesus as the Son of God. So the Pharisees' appeals to be part of God's vine on account of their Jewishness or their perfect observance of the law or the promises that God has made to them and their forefathers, they're kind of all effectively null and void in light of the one true Israelite, the only perfect observer of the law, the ultimate promise of God, who's Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other. So necessarily, those Pharisaic branches, they can no longer be part of it. So if you're sitting here thinking, that's me, Ask me. I'm going to be cut off and burned. That's me. The very fact that you're worrying that you're disconnected from God kind of proves that you're not. Cool. I'm glad we cleared that up. I can now move on. Um, remain. The language of remaining. It's not really language we use very often. I don't personally remember the last time I used the word remain. I mean, apart from when the UK was deciding whether to remain in the European Union, and it seemed to be every second sentence of everybody's life. But in general, we don't really use the word remain. And if you look at some of the synonyms to the word remain, we get words like abide. And I can guarantee that none of you have used the word abide in the last decade. Um, Or dwell. Dwell, that's another one. Um, So why don't we think about the opposite? So to wander away, to turn your back on. So when Jesus uses the word remain, he's talking about the opposite of disconnection or dismissal. He's talking about unfathomable closeness. In fact, one commentary I read this week described it like this. It's like mutual indwelling, mutual residency. Do you see that? The closeness, the connection, is so close that we've taken up our residence in him, and he has his residence in us. And it's like a vine. How do you tell the difference between a branch and the vine? Where does one end? Where does the other begin? We can't really tell. We can't be sure. We can't make such a statement. The branch is just like... that's. That's my, like, vine noise. That's what I think in my head. That's what, like, sap sounds like. (laughs) So you're welcome. Um, The vine is just, um, or the branches are just attached to the vine. It can't be be disconnected. It's in. And the fruit that it bears, it's not like the branches are like, I've got to make some fruit, you know? It doesn't try. It's just connected to the vine the fruit automatically happens. And in the same way, if we remain in Christ, if we abide with him, God's just gonna provide fruit. That's what this is saying, he's just gonna provide it. It's inevitable. That is what he's appointed and chosen us for. We cannot mess this up because the fruit making is not dependent on us, praise God. We just have to remain. We just have to be with him. While I was writing this talk, I um, kept having a picture coming into my mind's eye, which I always basically find really hard to describe. Like, yeah, I felt like God was speaking to me. I had this picture come into my mind's eye. (laughs) But similar to what we just heard people say um, as worship ended, and I actually find it really encouraging, the words that they said, because... The picture that I had come into my head was of a group of people with tar covering just their eyes. And they had been blinded. They couldn't see in front of them. And they were like trying to get the tar off their eyes, trying as hard as they could, becoming more and more exasperated, more and more stressed. And I think that's sometimes how trauma can feel, or our life can feel. The pain or the stress or the uncertainty makes us feel blind. Like, where do I put my next foot? I don't know where I'm going to step. And we don't really know how to regain our sight. We can't in those moments. We feel like we can't help ourselves. And I feel like that's how some of you are feeling this morning. It's like it's all well and good talking about abiding with Jesus. But it's almost like you have no idea what's going on in my life. You have no idea how blinded and backed into a corner I feel. How do you expect me to come to Jesus in that moment? And if that's how you feel, I'm sorry. I wholeheartedly relate to the feeling of hopelessness and detachment. Um, A few years ago, I was in a car accident and I'm not gonna do all the details because quite clearly I'm alive. But it was very serious. I broke three vertebrae in my neck. And one of the breaks was particularly close to my spinal cord. So the talk of paralysis was real. And I was forced to be on bed rest for months uh, with, like, contraptions and body braces. I moved like a legit robot. Um, And it was a horrible and terrifying experience. But now, looking back at the videos, it is quite funny. but mixed into all of this, Ed and Hannah were waiting for their first visa to come to L.A. And they'd asked me to come and volunteer at Bread. And in that moment that I broke my neck, I just thought, that's dead in the water. L.A. church plant, dead. I'm not going to be there. Broken neck, no L.A., no job, potential paralysis. But looking back with hindsight, obviously, it was in those moments, in those months, that I have I called most desperately out to God in a way that I have never done before because I had absolutely nothing to lose. I didn't care what I looked like. I didn't care if I used the right words. I certainly didn't care about how much I should read my Bible to be a good Christian or be an effective Christian or be a holy Christian. I was asking, where the heck are you? What does your presence feel like when I'm in the pit? show up, I was not controlled about it. I ugly cried and I cursed regularly. But I asked him to show up. And during that time, lying flat on my back, I had some of the most powerful and profound experiences of God's love, of just him being with me in it. And even in relation to this passage, I think we can take great comfort in knowing that Jesus is talking to his closest friends before his death and resurrection. What do you think the disciples are feeling right now? Surely they're like riddled with fear and anxiety. Remain in me. I'm sure they're like, dude, you're gonna die. Remain where? Two of them are moments away from betraying and denying him. And Jesus also knows that they're going to be anxious and fearful for three days after his death and before his resurrection. These people are the definition of blinded and hopeless right now. They have been following this man for three years. and It feels like everything is slipping away. And he's saying, remain in me. I won't leave you. I will dwell within you. It's better that I leave. The Spirit's coming These are words of comfort from Jesus, words of reassurance to his disciples, yes, but also to us. And obviously, thankfully, unlike the disciples at this point, we know that Jesus overcomes the grave, that his death and his resurrection has reinstated us into right relationship with our Father in heaven. We know that we can come to him, we can ask for the Father's love, the power of his spirit to shed abroad in our hearts. So finally, when we remain in him, what can we be sure of? What can we know that he will do? Verse one, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will bear even more fruit. So firstly, he will take upon himself the crap we're carrying He will cut off the diseased and rotting elements of our lives. That's why we pray for people at the end of services. Because we all have our stuff. We all carry around weight and trauma and uncertainty, comparison and shame, anger and bitterness. Life is hard. And so in that moment, we naturally and often keep ourselves at arm's distance from God. Because in some sense, it's easier. It's easier for us to completely stonewall ourselves from the pain or simply like grit our teeth and believe that we can get through. Or we've never been able to trust anyone. So the idea of trusting God is like, cool, how? Distance from God, autonomy from him. Controlling our emotions, feeling not good enough or unloved, that's death to us. It's not what we're created for. Dislocation from our Father in heaven is a subhuman existence. We are created to find our home in Him, to mutually indwell. The true vine, being part of God's family, remaining in Jesus, is not this abstract thing that we can't understand, it's a person. Jesus is the divine and cosmic truth and reality, become a person. So what do we do in those moments? We just come to him. We ask him to take the trash. We ask him to take the stuff that's weighing us down, the stuff that's making us doubt whether we're part of the vine. We ask him to clean our eyes of tar and we ask him to replace it with his love fill us with the power of his love and the power of his spirit and then we can breathe again because the gospel is not really about bad people becoming good even though I know many of us have been taught in church that it is it's about dead people becoming alive in Jesus so do you feel dead this morning come to him he can fill you with his life. He can cut off the dead bits that you don't need anymore and you can walk out of this place far less burden than when you walked in. So first, he gets rid of the crap. Secondly, he'll prune us. And therefore, fruit is inevitable. So pruning, not that I know, this is like the one part where I'm like, I just was like, what do people do when they grow grapes? <laughs> what's pruning? Um, I just drink the wine. Um, (laughs) Pruning apparently is a critical component to growing grapes. Vines must be pruned annually and fruit, grapes, are only produced from shoots growing from one-year-old canes so they just stop producing fruit after that. So if pruning doesn't happen, grapes don't happen. So vines go through, like, yearly rhythms. Sometimes they grow fruit, sometimes they don't. And quite frankly, I'm sure I'm not the only one who, even though the metaphor is great, I become somewhat uncomfortable applying this part of the metaphor to human beings. Pruning sounds like, to me, the deliberate infliction of pain. It's almost like God comes to, like, snip, snip, snip with his omnipotent God scissors, (laughs) This is his God scissors. <laughs> um, and obviously, this is made even more confusing by the reality that this belief fits perfectly into a list that I like to call top 10 Christian misinterpretations of the Bible. Statements like God has sent me these terrible circumstances to change my character. Let me tell you, I'm going through a time of pruning. And things are obviously somewhat more confused by the reality that God will use it. God uses these circumstances, but that's very different from saying that he deliberately sends us misfortune. As I said, I felt really close to God when I broke my neck. And arguably I'd say it is one of, if not the most formative experience of my Christian life. And God used that situation for good in many ways. But that's very different from me saying that God allowed me to be in a car accident and to break my neck to help me with my character development. Do you see the difference? So to really get the true meaning here, it's important that we understand what the word prune actually means because prune is actually more accurately translated purge. It's purging. So the idea is that as branches of the Lord, we need to be constantly cleansed in order to be healthy. So God's discarding of the diseased and unhealthy branches and his pruning for the increase of fruit is not a rejection. It's not like him being like, you aren't good enough, I'm going to chop this bit off. It's not disapproval. When life gets thrown at us, our hearts become callous because we choose to shut ourselves down, as I said, disconnect from one another, from our emotions, from God, our callous hearts cause us to become ignorant. And spiritual ignorance is less looming than it sounds. It's just that we forget who God is. We forget what he's done in our lives. We forget that his, what his love feels like. We believe that he's left or forsaken us. We forget what it feels like to feel alive. We don't feel gifted, the list goes on. But effectively, when we forget who God is, our growth is halted because we lose the knowledge that God is nice, that he likes us. And this is something we all experience. So the branch that needs pruning isn't bad. It isn't detrimental to our spiritual health. It isn't self-destructive or deathly, but it isn't growing effectively because we need to be reminded again of who God is. God's pruning is almost like him saying, just come back to Jesus, just come back, invite me into the chaos, and I'll remind you of who I am and then my fruit can grow in and through you. And this is all a work of the spirit. Just like the vine branch doesn't try hard to grow some fruit, we don't have to try hard for our fruit either. It's the pruning of the Father in heaven who loves us. The fruit-bearing part, that's just inevitable. That's a promise. The fruit will come because the vine, it's the vine who gives us what we need. It's the vine who gives us what we need to bear the fruit.